You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice, helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hola, hola. Welcome back. This is your host, David Orozco, with part two of the three-part series on weight neutrality in the Latinx community with my special guest again, bringing you Carolina Guisar. If you didn't listen to part one, maybe you should go ahead and check out part one, which came out last week, June 23rd, 2021, episode 97, and listen in on that so you can see where we pick up on. And I'm really excited because today we get to chat some more on some great topics I don't want to take up that much time. I want to get into right into the show. But before I do, I just want to quickly remind you that I also have part three coming up with Melissa Carmona. That will be next week, episode 99. So stay tuned. All right, let's jump into the interview. All right, so let's now talk about those narrow definitions of health. Talk to me a little bit about those and what that means in relationship to clients and people that are looking for health. Yeah, um, I think it's very, you know, and I've said this before, you know, we live in a culture that has very, very narrow definitions of health. So there's not a lot of space to deviate away from that definition. And I think that ultimately, um, you know, the definition is there to try and help people and empower people. And I actually think it it often works against people and has the effect of disempowering people. So I sort of, when I think about definitions of health, I think about, I think about that sort of um, breaking down into three sort of buckets. The first one is there's a lot of health assumptions based on BMI and weight. So there's this assumption that fat is bad thin is good, fat is unhealthy, thin is automatically healthy. Um, there's also this like overemphasis on physical health. And, and I don't, when I say this, I don't want to say that physical health isn't important or that people don't have the right to pursue that. I think every, you know, most humans inherently want to feel physically healthy. They want to feel physically good in their bodies. But I think our culture tries to distill health uh, to just placing a lot of emphasis on you have to be metabolic, metabolically healthy to be considered physically healthy. Right. So, um, I think we often, then that definition ends up sort of overlooking the importance of mental health in the definition of health. And there's also, uh, I I think this definition often then, uh, I don't know exactly how to say this, but there, there sort of is this underappreciation of the health impact of genetics, aging, social determinants of health, such as people who experience racism, low socioeconomic status, um, something called minority stress, which is the stress that minority populations uh, 
some minority populations undergo as a result of living in a society that is inherently racist and um, where people, where a lot of minority populations experience poverty. There's a physical, (laughs) there's a impact on physical health as a result of those factors. And so when we sort of, again, when we sort of distill the definition of health um, to just meaning or, or placing an emphasis on physical health, I think it sort of ignores the importance of all of these other factors that also impact uh, not just physical health, but also mental health. I, I really want to plug in here because it, a lot of people don't know this. There is a hustle that immigrants, Latino immigrants, mm-hmm. I mean, holy crap. I mean, that alone right there is the stress. You know, yeah. you, you take that assimil- assimilation, you know, you're trying yeah. to fit into the culture and mm-hmm. there is the um, American dream. And yeah. for immigrants, it's an enormous mm-hmm. hustle. I would say 10 times more than the average American, the white, non-Hispanic, non-colored person, right? That we unfortunately have to go through. I remember my parents, uh, Mm -hmm. my father has a law degree from Columbia. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. now my mother didn't, but she was Mm -hmm. uh, raising nine kids. And mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's a stress <laughs> and, 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 and the, you know, coming to a, a new country, not knowing the language and, you know, trying to fit in. And then a lot of times uh, Latinos, when they migrate to the United States, they are pocketed into certain populations and areas yep. that isolate them in some regards, but mm-hmm. then group themselves. And, and there's part of that connection here, you know, Oh my gosh, I, I I don't remember. I remember going to the doctor when we were kids. I mm-hmm. do remember mm-hmm. that. And and mm-hmm. but we would go for dentistry. We would go to the university, the medical mm-hmm. the dentistry school in mm-hmm. in New Jersey because yeah. my parents couldn't afford, you know, yeah. uh dental work. I mean, it was super expensive. Yeah. And my parents were always paying out of pocket for mm-hmm. doctor visits. And so it, it, the hustle is just so when you talk about that, you know, that yeah. narrow definition of health, that's exactly what came to mind. But when you said minority stress, I'm like, oh, let me throw that yes. in here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's so interesting because I'm getting flashbacks to my childhood where we had to go to uh, there was this building in the city I lived in that housed the, you know, the public library. And then next to it was like the county health clinic. Yeah. And I remember too. having to go and wait and like, what looked like just a generic room for basic medical care, because my parents, I don't know if they didn't have insurance or what, but like I had to go get testing done there because that's all they could afford. And and it's good that we had that resource and, and, and that, um, that sort of support, but you know, it definitely, I don't know the quality of the care <laughs> that we actually I, received. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I know that we had this Cuban doctor and then that was the other <laughs> thing too. You know, we had <laughs> such a, a, a conglomeration of Latino cultures. We had, mm-hmm. uh, well, where I grew up in New Jersey, there were Cubans that dominated the, the, the area that I that grew up in, but there were mm-hmm. Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Colombians. There were, there are so many different, um, people from various different uh, countries in, uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Roca, I remember his name <laughs> and Dr. Roca, and we would go to him and he served everyone in our family. Yeah. 
from yeah. my mom all the way through me, you know, so yeah. he served all of us. And it was interesting. I don't ever remember my parents having health insurance at all. Yeah. And yeah. the only health insurance I ever remember my parents having was Medicare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we must have had Medicare. Like, I don't even, re- I, I should ask my mom because I, I really don't remember, but I just remember, you know, I don't know. There's definitely, I think the stress of the hustle is something um, that people don't really talk about. And I, it's making me think of, you know, I have, some clients that their parents are working like overtime, uh, you know, overnight shifts, which goodness gracious. Right. And think about the impact that that has on, on the body to not sleep when it is nighttime. And when the impact that that has on your, your uh, stress levels, your cortisol levels, your blood sugar management. Right. And so all of these things, you know, what, because we live in a culture that sort of, you know, it's it, very individualistic. So health is, you know, the narrative is health is within your control. Health should be controlled. Um, uh, you know, there's this, it, they ignore all the social determinants of health and things like that. Um, I, I think it, it actually ends up harming populations, marginalized populations, especially that sort of, ha- you know, they're relegated to these very difficult, strenuous jobs that are often long hours. You know, the shifts are, you know, in some cases very unpredictable, and that's going to have an impact on sleep, stress. If you're stressed out paying the rent and just having food on the table, like, you know, the last of your concerns is like, there's no space for stress reduction for instance, right? Like you just are trying to meet basic needs. And, um, and and again, I think when we sort of lean into that really narrow definition of health, it actually has the impact of harming a lot of people, maybe not people with access to resources and people who are able to engage in health promoting behaviors. Like for those people, I could see (laughs) a narrow definition of health possibly being beneficial to them. But um, I think you know, I at least I'm an advocate for a more expansive definition so people can pursue health, you know, on their own terms and being realistic ab- about what the options that are uh, about what options are actually available to them. Yeah. I mean, and, and simply speaking, you can mm-hmm. be in a thin body and not be healthy. And I think you touched mm-hmm. on it too about this idea of mental health. I mean, you could be a complete whack job. And your cholesterol is fine. And, you know, you're, you don't have diabetes or anything like that, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I don't know about you, but that to me is not healthy. If you're a whack job, even though you're in a thin body. <laughs> well, and, and this is the other thing. It's sort of like, I, I, I often think, you know, why, uh, you know, I have a lot of patients that come to me and like, I, I don't want to say that metabolic health is not important, right? Oh, if if it's important to the yeah. person, you know, if, if it's important to a person, they definitely have the right to pursue health promoting behaviors and all of that. But like people come to me, especially clients in larger bodies, and they'll be like, my, my doctor told me to lose weight. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, they're concerned about the future and diabetes risk. And I'm like, well, what do your labs say? <laughs> and a lot right. of them will be like, nothing. There's literally nothing wrong with me or, oh, my A1C is slightly elevated. And, you know, the doctor's like, oh, this is going to turn into diabetes for sure. And um, so they come into my office panicked and we have to, you know, I have to sort of be like, hey, okay, let's, let's slow this down. Let's have a deeper conversation about what this actually means. And I think, you know, 
again, I I don't want to say that things like A1C aren't important or don't indicate some some future risk, but that I think these are moments for us to slow down and have these more thoughtful, nuanced conversations around, well, what does health mean for you? What behaviors are accessible to you? What do you actually want to engage? You know, what sort of behaviors do you want to engage in? What can you engage in? What do you have time for? What's going to stick? What doesn't feel restrictive? Like, all of these, you know, the doctors, you know, the, the patient will often come to my office and be like, the doctor printed out this handout. It says cut out sugar, saturated fats, uh, X, you know, engage in X amount of minutes of activity per day. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Like, let's actually have a conversation about how this information impacts you and what this means for, for your daily life. Yeah. It reminds me of this. Um... Uh, pie chart of the social determinants of health. And I did an Mm -hmm. episode with Michelle Gooden, who is the um, director of nutrition at Emory. And she Mm -hmm. also does the um, dietetic internship over there as well. She's the program uh, director coordinator there. And I remember looking at, uh, we, so we did an episode, it was episode 61, and we talked about social determinants of health. To me, what's, what's really, really interesting is that health, um, it, it, essentially, when you look at this pie chart, it was mm-hmm. only like 20 to 30% of your health was determined by you and what you yeah. can do, you know, things mm-hmm. in your life, like physical activity and the way you eat. And it was so interesting. So I tied that to, have you ever heard of the blue zones and around the world? Yeah, like like blue zone uh, areas like Japan. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Where mm-hmm. they had they have the highest level of centurions, people that live to close to a hundred, over a hundred, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they they looked at all of the factors that make up the way that they are able to live that long, and food, eating, physical activity were actually you know like eight or nine on a scale of one to 10. So it yeah. really ties in well with um, social determinants of health and, yeah. and this idea there. But yeah, you're, I mean, it, you're absolutely right. Shoot, yeah. there was something else yeah. that I was going to get to at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what that makes me think of? Like, I always think of um, that, like safety in a neighborhood, for instance. Let's take that right. social determinant Beautiful. of health, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I remember I lived in an area of LA. I grew up in an area of LA until the age of five, where there was a lot of violence, right? Oh, yeah. I Me remember too. being stressed out about mm-hmm. walking in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was like four or five, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think about that. And the, and by the way, I'm, I was like a highly anxious kid mm. <laughs> and, and I still have a lot of like trauma around the stuff that I saw growing up. Like I still have really bad nightmares about things that I saw in that neighborhood. And so I, you know, I think about the effect that that had on my four or five-year-old body. And now imagine that in an, an adult, right? Yeah. And how can you be physically healthy when like literally leaving your house, you're like looking over your shoulder and there's like a slightly elevated stress response, just walking around. Yeah. I was 13 or 14 Mm -hmm. years old. And I remember Mm -hmm. we would play wiffle ball in Mm -hmm. our neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. I grew up in an area in New Jersey where there were all these row houses on these streets. I mean, you know, you can see them in those movies where you got all these houses that are like literally pinned together practically. And we had this tiny Mm -hmm. little driveway. So we would, we would play in our driveways and I remember having this, excuse me, this cool bike back in the day. 
was called a torker. I, I got to say it because I, <laughs> I love that bike. I was a big BMXer and stuff like that. And I was fortunate because my parents had, they started, you know, building a little wealth. You know, they moved on up. Um, so I remember I had this cool bike and we were all, it was a bunch of guys. I was Lenny and Oscar and Pepe <laughs> and me. And we were playing wiffle ball and we had our bikes all over the place. And this dude, out of nowhere i mean he comes walking over and he's like yo dude what's up can i hey man can i play can i play and um we're like oh i don't i don't know but we were so used to crap like that i mean we were so used to you know Mm -hmm. some guy on the street that you didn't know who the heck he was and he was either high or he was drunk or Mm -hmm. They mm-hmm. weren't. They just wanted yeah. to rip you off somehow, right? And we yeah. were so we were always told by our parents, you got to be careful with that. You got to still stay yeah. near the house, you know, stuff like that. And yeah. he picks up my bike and he takes <gasps> off. And I'm like, no freaking way. I get on my buddy's bike and I start chasing after him. I go running and running. I mean, biking and biking after him. I biked all the way down from where we were to Jersey City, which is like, I don't know, let's say 15. Following him? Oh, yeah. Followed him. <laughs> I was like, he is not going to steal my bike. And then what ended up happening was he was riding down a hill and he flipped over the bike. Bah, 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 bah. He just tumbled. Oh flipped. I swear to God, I thought that guy broke every bone in his body. And then he gets up. He gets back on my bike and then he looks at me and he goes, you're going to keep following me. And he whips out a knife. And I'm like, OK, <gasps> yeah, that's, that's when it. Stop. Bike that's is yours. <laughs> See you later. If you could still ride the bike in that condition, dude, yeah. it's all you. I-, I was crying the whole way back home. Talk about Aww. trauma, you know? Well, well yeah. And, and I think, yeah, it just. I think situations like that, and look, that's not every no. Latinx person, yeah, right? right? But, that, that, but it, and that's not to generalize that this happens to all of us, but sort of, I, I think this happens to a lot of us that, that, you know, a lot of the, you know, people, especially immigrants, we, we have to move to lower income areas where there may be, there may be more crime. There's a, a lot more poverty. And so life is just a, a, a lot harder. And, uh, And, and, you know, I I worked in the Bronx and I think back then it's like, I sort of, I knew that, right. I I was working with a lower income population there and I'm like, yeah, I know that life is harder, but I don't think I sort of really sat with what is the effect of this, you know, what is the psychological effect of this and how does that actually impact physical health? I don't think I fully appreciated that until I sort of started doing more of the health at every size work and started really looking at the the research on social determinants of health. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move over to what our culture does, our cultures, I should say, because, you know, Mm -hmm. again, we're not a monolith, but I love this part here where you talk about food as medicine. So let's talk a little bit about that, because that's something that's, you know, when we don't have access to care, well, this is what we're going to go to sometime too, right? So talk a little (laughs) bit about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, speaking of the Bronx, so I worked, I worked in breast cancer for a year in, in an outpatient position. And I, you know, I, I'm Latina and I would say that the vast majority of the patients were either Dominican, Puerto Rican or black. And I would sit down with a new patient and they would show up with like a bag of supplements Oh yeah, <laughs> and they were like, Oh, so-and-so told me to take these. These are going to help with my cancer treatment. And so I think, um, you know, there's definitely this belief in the, in the Latinx, um, in Latinx communities that food can be medicine, that uh, food derived compounds 
have medicinal properties and they can be used for the treatment of acute and, and chronic illnesses. And I think, you know, because we are, as practitioners, we're trained through a Western lens, a very, you know, there's an emphasis on science-based practices, evidence-based practices, which I think is very valuable because I don't ever want to give people recommendations that um, don't have some sort of usefulness. Um, but I think sort of the, the, the I, I don't want to demean the value of science, but I think just sort of saying to patients, especially minority patients, like, we just need to rely 100% on the science and sort of excluding, hey, like, you know, my mom's caldo de pollo really makes me feel a lot better on a day when I feel sick. And that caldo de pollo has, uh, you know, some fat goblets that have vitamin A and vitamin A has um, an impact on immune function. Like I think practitioners who are really, really dismissive or condescending about these cultural practices, it really ends up impairing the trust uh, that a patient might have with their practitioner if they get the sense that they're being talked down to. And I'm not saying again that, you know, I, def I definitely, especially in the context of uh, cancer treatment, I wouldn't want anybody to be taking a supplement that might be interacting with their chemotherapy or their diabetes medication, or maybe making that medication medications impact, uh, sort of maybe upregulating. Oh, that's a bit of a fancy word, but I don't know how else to say it. No, sort of making, okay. uh, upregulating how that medication is working. So meaning it's working, um, too efficiently how, or ineffectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, antioxidants or phytonutrients. It's yeah. like too much of them is an upregulation of them as well. They become actually detrimental to the body. Exactly. Right. So I never want something to be interacting with medication or, or treatment. Um, and I'm not going to come at that patient being like, why are you taking these? Or, oh, those don't, those don't work. You shouldn't be doing anything. I'm going to sit down with the patient to be like, hey, what is it you're taking? Why is it you're taking it? And why do you feel it's important? And you know, hearing their story and sort of being like, Hey, can I get back to, do you mind if I do some research? Let's say if I don't know the supplement, do you mind if I do some research and then I'll get back to you on whether or not I think this might be actually detrimental to the treatment. So I think it, it really, you know, it's important for practitioners to acknowledge that food is used medicinally, that by the way, a lot of the medications that we use are derived from plant compounds. So like there might be some grain of truth in why X food is used for X <laughs> chronic condition. Um, and I think when patient, when practitioners don't have that appreciation and they sort of come at their patients in a condescending way, that can actually, you know, that can actually be detrimental to your relationship with that patient. So I think you have to be really thoughtful about how you approach these conversations with Latino patients. Yeah. When I first started out as a dietitian, I actually was dismissive and condescending mm -hmm. in regards. And the reason mm -hmm. is, is because there was such, such hatred in my heart for supplement industry, because yeah. I remember my mom, when she was diagnosed with colon cancer, she refuted conventional treatment. And I didn't realize, I didn't remember until I talked to my sister. She said, David, this was your idea. And I said, what are you talking about? I wasn't a dietitian when she was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer at the time. I mm. found out about this whole foods uh, diet approach where it was raw food. It was literally nothing cooked, not just mm -hmm. not animal food, mm -hmm. nothing mm -hmm. cooked, nothing killed, yeah. nothing cooked. I went through a raw diet phase. 
Back oh, in the you day. did. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that. That was the the start of my like orthorexia. Yeah. basically. That too. Yeah. For me too. For me too. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. uh, I told my mom about that. And so my mother, my mother actually, my mother and my father both, they actually moved away from conventional treatment. So my mother never got conventional cancer wow. treatment. Yeah. Wow. And wow. I know. And so, but then my parents started buying these supplements. Mm-hmm. And I remember they bought they bought this box. I think they spent like twelve hundred dollars. This is another example mm-hmm. of how it's such a slippery slope here with food as medicine, yeah. right? Because on yep. one hand, there are so many treatments that maybe even if they have a a, a bit of a placebo effect, mm-hmm. they're traditional food medicine kind of yeah. things, herbs that might use like uh, yerbabuena, which is uh, mint, right? Mm-hmm. And how that's so ubiquitous in Latin cultures, right? Mm-hmm. But my parents bought this this supplement. It was called NRT or something like that. I don't remember mm-hmm. the name exactly, but the FTC pulled it from the market. My my parents are like so frustrated. It's like this is going to cure mom, and at that's at that point, it's like no, that's that's not going to mm. cure mom anymore. And I I mean yeah. I I fell into it too. Quite honestly, I used to buy this water called pentahydrate, and it was supposedly mm. water that was made of only five molecules of of H two O. It's like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know oh well the things you know the things we spend money on i mean i've gone through i've been through that phase and i think what's really tricky is that like for instance i um this is a little bit of self-disclosure but i do weekly acupuncture treatments right uh, okay. and i do it for basically anxiety and yeah. i have uh some sleep issues so um i have found it to be really really helpful mm. to manage my stress my anxiety and my tendencies towards insomnia. And I notice an impact on my body when I skip a week, like I don't, I don't feel as good. And so, yeah, you know, so, so it's sort of hard because I've had doctors be like, wait, you do that. And I'm like, I find it helpful and it works for my body. It works for me. It's my, it's an hour out of my day that I, you know, I get for self-care and I've noticed a an amazing, a positive impact on my health. And, you know, I sort of pick and choose what of acupuncture works for me. So sometimes somebody might recommend, oh, if you just eat more of this or more of that, like you'll, it'll do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, eh, yeah, I'm not going to cut out cheese. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm yeah. not going to cut out dairy. Yeah. Like that's just not going to, that doesn't work for me. So I sort of just pick and choose what works for me. Well, and then I leave what doesn't work behind. Yeah. And, and it's like what you're saying here in this is that you're as a practitioner, as a clinician, mm-hmm. what we don't want to do is dismiss or condense, condescend a person mm-hmm. for what they're bringing. It's looking at, oh, right, is there an interaction with medication? Are they not doing some kind of treatment that would be more beneficial for them? Yeah. Those are the kind of things that we're going to look for. Right. And I think that that's yeah. really important. But we're also talking about how, like you said a little while ago, you know, we put fruits and vegetables, well, not fruits, but vegetables in certain soups. And so mm-hmm. what we don't know is maybe there are some more medicinal values in the cooking of that food that we wouldn't yeah. otherwise get in the rawness of the food. Like one example would be lycopene, right? Lycopene yeah. is a phytonutrient that's in tomatoes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But yep. it's a heck of a lot more condensed or higher in mm-hmm. cooked tomatoes. So yeah. a lot of marinara sauce and stuff would have higher quantities of lycopene. Right? And, you know, that's yep. an example there, right? Yeah. All right. Exactly. So let's talk about the fear of medications. <laughs> yeah. So conversely, yeah. Uh, you know, food as medicine can sort of be um, 
is elevated in some communities, which I totally understand. And then I think sometimes then there can be a stigma associated with taking medication and there definitely can be a desire for people only wanting to use natural interventions. And this isn't unique to Latinx communities, but you know, this is something I have observed very often. And um, I totally, you know, I, again, like people of color have very complicated relationships with the medical system. And a lot of people of color, especially black people, haven't had positive uh, interactions with the healthcare system and with research. And so I can understand where some of the hesitation around uh, medical interventions come up for certain communities. And so I think it's important to not be dismissive of people who are sort of scared to take medications um, and just hear them out, you know, listen to their concerns, explore the pros and cons of not taking a medication. And I think this has the benefit of building rapport with the patient. And, you know, if they feel like, A, you're not judging them, that A, you know, you're actually a partner, that you're providing them information um, that is understandable and addressing their concerns, then they might be more open to taking a medication that, you know, that is actually going to help whatever health concern they have. Because I think there is a limitation to what nutrition can do for a lot of, um, for a lot of conditions like there are certain conditions you just need to take medication for. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I, I often talk to people about uh, triglycerides, right? And so mm-hmm. people know that some people know that omega threes can be helpful in lowering triglycerides. Oh. So a lot of people will start taking omega threes instead of taking, you know, well, usually most times triglycerides have to be really, really high in order for physicians to prescribe yeah. medication for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but at that point, you know, omega-3s might not help that much, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing with fiber, right? Like uh, the dietary fiber that you find in oatmeal. So people Mm -hmm. will start eating a lot more oatmeal, hoping that their cholesterol will come down. And that that's helpful. But sometimes if your cholesterol is really, really high, you know, it's a lot more beneficial. I often tell people, yeah, the food can help, but it's not medication. Yes. Well, so it, it, I have these conversations so often, like I had a, a patient, same thing. Um, a doctor was like, I, I don't want to put you on medication yet. It's like, just let's do diet and exercise. So she comes in, I take a diet recall and I'm like, you know, uh, there's literally nothing I would change about how yeah, I get eat. those all the time. I get those right? all the time. They're like, what can I do differently? And I'm like, you are literally from a, just, if you're looking strictly at diet, you are doing everything sort of textbook for how, you know, how to improve cholesterol. This is a medication. This is genetics. This is a medication, uh, issue. Like yeah. there, the food is not going to quote unquote cure this. Yeah. I just and, got a client yeah. just the other day, Colombian, and I can't give too much information and mm-hmm. he works a lot, um, mm-hmm. in construction. And mm-hmm. so He's very physically active and uh, his diet, when I looked at his diet, I mean, he may have not been eating that way a few months back, but he is Mm -hmm. now. And Mm -hmm. he wanted me to give him the recipe of how I'm like, no, brother, this is you're you're right on track. I really wouldn't change anything. Quite honestly, Mm -hmm. you're doing everything that you have to do. And I said, you know, you might need to consider medication if your blood sugar. I mean, if your uh, cholesterol doesn't come down the next doctor visit, but know that it's going to take three to six months for cholesterol Mm -hmm. to move. 
because cholesterol mm-hmm. takes a long time. If you're not using medication, it's going to take a long time to move. You know, yeah. it's not something that like blood sugar. It's not something that turns on a dime. It's more like an aircraft carrier. It takes a mile to, to turn <laughs> that 180, you know? <laughs> well, and by the way, it, and, and diet might not do anything, right? right. Like, that's, that's the other, that's the that's other it. thing. And, and so I'm sort of like, I, again, I have a lot of patients that come to me with that and it's that over that narrow, again, that it goes back to that narrow definition of health is that, oh, health can just be controlled with diet and exercise. And it's like, eh, maybe for some people, but like not for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, that really brings up this next part, too, is mm-hmm. uh, what ends up happening when we focus on diet and what that does to marginalized populations like the Latinx mm-hmm. uh, communities. Yeah. So diet culture is, oh my gosh, it, it can really be quite challenging. Let's talk a little bit about that. You bring up something that's really good in all of this. You know, yeah. I'd love for you to just touch a little bit about all of that. Oh, diet culture. Uh, did you <laughs> define diet culture? No, go ahead. Define it. Oh, goodness. How do I define this? Um, so diet culture is the system of beliefs and attitudes towards eating towards bodies. And it really relies on a hierarchy of bodies and a set of rules around eating. And, and what that means is that um, there are, you know, sort of what we've already touched on these beliefs that fat is bad, um, that there is only one way of uh, one good way of eating. So for example, like the Mediterranean diet gets touted as the best diet in the world, which, you know, for Latinos, we're not from the Mediterranean, maybe way back when some of us. Um, so that dietary pattern doesn't really resonate with us. Um, so it, it diet culture is the set of beliefs and attitudes that fat bodies are bad, thin bodies are better, that there's only a certain way of eating and that any way of eating that deviates from that is like, you're going to be unhealthy. Um, and if you sort of subscribe to that Eurocentric standard of eating, like the Mediterranean diet, like it is somehow a guarantee of health. And what this ends up, what those expectations end up doing is harming marginalized populations in the way I just sort of mentioned that like, if a Mediterranean diet gets touted as the best diet possible for health, And I'm looking at that as a Latina and being like, uh, that, like that pattern of eating doesn't fully resonate with how I grew up. Then how is that going to make me feel? It's going to make me feel like I'm not do like I could do more, like I'm not doing the best I can. And so I think in that way, diet culture ends up, you know, when we have these expectations that bodies only look a certain way and that anybody that deviates from that is unhealthy, it just has this impact of, um, of not making me feel like I'm doing enough. And then again, putting the blame on me, if something with my health does go wrong, it makes a uh, diet culture makes it seem like, well, you did something wrong and you know, it, it wasn't your control and you didn't do things to fix it when really like health is just much more complicated and nuanced than how do- diet culture makes it out to be. Yeah. And diet culture, I find really uh, hinges on some major, major topics. Uh, capitalism for one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. 73, $78 billion industry yeah. now uh, yeah. from last check, right? Yeah. That's one. So there, there's something wrong with you. Buy our stuff, buy our diet, buy our yep. fad, buy our whatever mm-hmm. book or whatever. And, and you will be cured. And you will be cured. 
until mm-hmm. the next one comes along. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So it's a, you know, I always think of it. It's, it's an oppressive system. There, you that really, was the really other one think I was about say. Uh-huh. it. Right. So it's, so it is a form of oppression that is very normalized. Mm-hmm. And so people don't see it when it's right, right in front of them. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, I, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to shame and blame people. Like I used to fall victim to this stuff too. Like I Me told too. you, I said, I went through a raw food diet phase. Mm-hmm. I went through a paleo phase. Um, and I think it's very normal in our society to, to fall victim to these fads, because again, you think, you know, I've got to do a paleo or whatever, right. I'm just like, that's just an example to be healthy. And then that paleo diet starts to take me away from, I remember I had anxiety about eating rice and tortillas. And I was like, I literally, the thought of it, like gave, like, I had like panicked feelings when I thought I have to eat those things because I thought that eating those things were going to create inflammation. That's going to increase my risk for cancer. That's going to increase my risk for diabetes. And so diet culture's expectations that you're eating needs to look a certain way that your body needs to conform to certain standards. And any deviation from that is going to have detrimental effects on your health. Well, that is going to harm marginalized folks who, again, their health is impacted by all of these unseen, unacknowledged factors that, again, you know, capitalism wants to exploit people. Uh, Capitalism also has the impact of, you know, we have a very individualistic society. So there's that that belief that food and eating and health are in our control. Um, All of these expectations then harm people whose health is impacted by factors they can't control. Yeah. And in there you throw in racism, patriarchy, misogynism. Ugh. I think it's just, it, it continues on uh, through the, that diet culture. I'm superior mm-hmm. than you because I have this look, I am better mm-hmm. than you. Or the, the word that I actually don't like using quite often with clients is I'm going to help you. And the reason I don't like using yeah. that is because that puts me at a pedestal. There's nothing wrong with me, but there's something wrong with you. You don't look like me. And so I'm privileged because I'm in a thin, thin body and Mm -hmm. I have, I pack it pass as white in, in, Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. But as soon as people hear my last name, oh wait, no, he's not white. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, with my Latinx clients, you know, I fit that bill, right? So, oh, I'm the model of what they think I'm supposed to be. And of course, it's not just them, it's also Mm -hmm. other people. And so what that does is suppresses them a little bit. I have Mm -hmm. not only privilege, but I also have power. And Mm -hmm. acknowledging that power is really, really important. I like that you bring this up. Well, you didn't bring it up, but I'm looking at your notes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, again, and I think, Diet culture, you know, if we're talking about like the role of dietitians, we are positioned as people like who have authority and like we know the answers, we have the secrets to health. And it's sort of like, well, I might have a little bit more information than you do, right? But my job is to you, I think most people inherently, they have wisdom and they have the answers within them. You and I are just like the the mirrors in all of this to be like, well, what is it that you actually want out of our work together? And then the little bit more of information I have about the impact food can have on your diet or your digestion, like I will integrate that in ways that are actually going to be helpful for you. And 
again, it's a partnership and I'm not talking down to you. I'm not talking at you. I'm going to be talking and sitting alongside of you in this journey. And I don't have, you know, I, I, I'm not superior because I have an education or anything like that. I just, it just gives me a little bit more access to uh, a little bit more knowledge than you. That's all it does. Yeah. And these are one of those things that really wedge a separation in our Mm -hmm. society and look at them. They're crossing our border. They're going to take over our world. They're going to see they're diseased or they're they're There's something wrong with them and they're 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 going to rob our healthcare system, you know, shit, shit like that. It's just Oh, it gets under my skin. I remember uh, a family member of, of mine. Um, he is American, but he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. And uh, not that that means anything, but it's just, well, I guess it does in that he is from a marginalized uh, society yeah. community yeah. as well. So I mm-hmm. found this to be very, very interesting. I remember right at the beginning of like 2016, 2017, Mm -hmm. when all of that controversy about these immigrants, these, what they called them illegal aliens. Oh, that got me. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, oh, he he showed me on on Facebook or something like that, uh, this diagram, they compared this white uh, worker with this uh, Latino worker. And uh, he doesn't pay taxes and he doesn't pay health care and he doesn't pay uh, for this. And so a, a $2,000 paycheck at the end of the month, he takes home $1,500. The white guy, the non-Hispanic American mm-hmm. uh, uh, individual pays taxes, pays health care, all, all that jazz. And mm-hmm. he takes home 500 bucks at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, you that ignorance right there is so... So, I mean, number one, that person, that Latino worker, he doesn't have health care. So he's having to pay out of pocket to go get any. If he does, yeah. he an yeah. enormous amount of taxes, either mm-hmm. in the house that he buys, the car that he buys, or the products mm-hmm. that he buys for mm-hmm. his family. He sends practically half his paycheck to his family overseas or to their mm-hmm. country. And mm-hmm. then- there's very little money left or maybe eating. And, mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, so it was like $35 compared to the $500 from the white person. Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, the, I, I have so like, many feelings about this. I know. And I it's know. sort of like, I, there's this strain of, of people in, in, especially in marginalized communities that it's like, almost like they want to close the door behind them. Like, <laughs> And, and I see that a lot in you know, even some people in my family where it's like, <laughs> I had somebody in my family be like, those, those uh, immigrants coming over, they're criminals. And I'm like, but what do you think they said about you in the 80s when you came over undocumented? I was here to work. And I'm like, well, what, what makes you-, you think those people are here? I literally was looking at this person just like, you know, like a dog does the head tilt and they look confused. <laughs> I literally did that. I was just like, wait, what? And, and I, you know, I don't know when people have these, these responses to that sort of stuff, I've got to think there's something deep down inside that it, clearly there is a wound this issue was touching on that hasn't been resolved for that person, um, that they get this heated up about this issue. And, and, it, and it, again, it's just sort of like, then, you know, 
sort of coming back to the topic of health is like, how do you think these attitudes that a lot of people in this country have towards marginalized communities like Latinos, how do you think that's going to impact um, the person uh, who is undocumented, just, you know, working at a restaurant, working in someone's home, taking care of their kids or cleaning or something like that, how that's going to impact them on a physical level, on a psychological level, and what impact might that have? again, on their stress levels and, and things like that. I think all of this stuff is, um, ugh, it's just a lot messier than people want to admit it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I can go on and on talking about this too, because it really frustrates me to no ugh. end, especially when we talk about so many families that are coming over to have a, you know, a chance to get away mm -hmm. from oppressed regimes, tyrannical mm -hmm. governments, um, gang violence. violence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, holy cow. Um, but I, again, we could spend <laughs> the entire that, that's, podcast. A, that's a other podcast. <laughs> yeah. no kidding. I do want to uh, touch on something that you mentioned about yeah. the body image, the body size and, mm -hmm. What would be some questions that we can talk about in regards to yeah. how diet culture says about body images and how we can get around that? Yeah. So I think diet culture has, you know, going back to those beliefs and attitudes, there's um, this belief that, you know, if you're not thin, you're unhealthy, or that if you're not thin, you're undesirable, that you're a burden on society because in the future you might have, you might develop certain diseases as a result of your body size, which I, that is not an argument, um, I believe in because mm -hmm. I think health is a lot more complicated than that. Me, um, yeah. but again, if, if culturally that's the definition that we have for body image, and then, you know, on top of that, there are these, we talked about those Eurocentric beauty standards that features need to look a certain way that your skin needs to be a certain skin tone. Your hair needs to be a certain texture. Um, you know, God forbid you be trans. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think uh, there's also this expectation around certain beauty standards that are very, that's, you know, diet culture has that are very narrow. And if you don't fit those standards, then you feel less than, right. Yes. You feel othered. And so body image, uh, it is very normal for people to have negative body image as a result of these cultural beauty standards. And again, that assumption that if you live in a larger body or that you gain weight, even if you're not in a large bit, that you, that it is somehow detrimental to your health. And that is, that it is a moral failing. All you start to internalize all of these messages. And so when it deviates from what's considered ideal, you feel bad about yourself. That's very normal. And I, I think, you know, it's, <laughs> It sucks because it causes a lot of shame. It causes a lot of emotional distress for people. And well, how do you think that inf impacts physical health? That That's not good when people are emotionally distressed over what their body looks like. Um, and again, diet culture will then exploit you. Well, if you do X, Y, Z, or you get X, Y, Z cosmetic procedure, then you'll fit in more. Then you'll be more desirable. Uh, could be less of a burden to society, all of these things. All right. So how then would someone in the Latinx community start asking certain questions that explore their body image? You know, if they yeah. don't fit that normative ideal body image that mm -hmm. diet culture portrays, mm -hmm. then what questions should they ask? Yeah. 
I, well, I think the, the way to first answer that is, you know, let's define body image. So body image is uh, an inner picture of your outside appearance, right? And that picture, oof, it, it, it changes moment to moment, day to day. Um, it, you'll just be sort of moving along with your day in your body. You'll look in the mirror, you'll see a reflection or you're, you'll see an advertisement. Someone will make a comment. And all of a sudden you have a disruption in how you are living in your body, right? So these, I call these body image disruptions where you have this moment that takes you outside of your body. And all of a sudden now you're looking at your body from the outside. And I think it's really important to, uh, you know, to really normalize this. It's very normal to have these disruptions and also for people to know that it's not their fault right? That we live in a culture that overvalues appearance that over, you know, especially in Latino communities, um, there's a lot of worth placed on women's appearance and that's tied to social desirability. Um, so it is very normal to have these disruptive moments with your body. And it's very unfair, right? That so much value is placed on our appearance and that we're, we're made to think that that's all we have to contribute to the world. And so I think you have to sort of have that basic understanding before you can even start exploring your own body image, right. To, to sort of know that it's not your fault and that all of these cultural expectations are influencing that process and then sort of be aware of, um, well, what are these moments that caused these, this disruption that I have in my relationship with my body? So that's sort of, I would say step one is defining it. Step one being step two being like, this is not your fault. This is quite normal. Um, I don't know. I don't know anybody who doesn't have those body image disruption moments. Um, and uh, the next step would probably be again, sort of understanding, well, what are, you know, what are the messages and the, what are the messages I'm receiving about my body? What are the beliefs I have uh, about what my body should look like? What size should my body be? What should my um, face look like? Uh, do I have the belief that my body shouldn't change as I age, that I, do, I shouldn't get wrinkles, that I shouldn't get gray hair, that um, again, I, even health conversations can have an impact on body image that like, oh, I shouldn't, I should be disease free. Like how are all these messages and beliefs impacting your relationship with your body? And then how is that sort of panning out throughout the day and um you know body image exploration that is a long that is a, a lifelong exploration there's never a fix for body image issues instead i think it's just developing a different relationship with those thoughts knowing that those thoughts will never go away that's the other thing i have people are like i just don't want to think negative things about my body and i'm like well how is that realistic that when we live in a culture that is telling us this is all we have to offer. It's not realistic to get rid of these negative thoughts, you know? And, and I think it's, you know, a body image is a, a body image uh, exploration really becomes a practice in relating to those thoughts differently and to have a lot more compassion for yourself in those moments where you might look in the mirror and you might be like, Oh, I don't like what I see. And instead of placing the blame on your body, sort of taking a step back to be like, wow, I'm having a really difficult body image moment right now. Like, 
this is normal. This is a human experience. And none of this is my fault. Again, it's, it's the system. It's the diet culture system that's outside of me that is placing this pressure and this expectation on myself that I have to look a certain way to be presentable or desirable to the world. And that's unfair. That's beautiful. That is so, so profound because that does lead into that self-compassion that really, really drives in that self-kindness because you are going to have those thoughts. And Mm -hmm. just because you've had them, let's leave diet culture out for a second. Just because you've experienced having them, it doesn't mean that they're gone. You will always have them. Now, over time, they become quieter and quieter and quieter because you do take on that new voice and that new narrative, yes. right? And that's yeah, what you're talking yeah. about. It's allowing yourself. Yeah. I love the three steps here. This is beautiful. I love number one, defining it. First, understand what it is. Number two, and this is so Brene Brown, normalize it. Mm-hmm. Know that this is a normal thing that every single human being does. They're always looking at what society is saying about their body or what they're saying mm-hmm. about themselves. And then that becomes your narrative. So normalize mm-hmm. it. Know that, that it's there. And then explore it here. Like let curiosity guide you. Right. And this leads into Kristen Neff and self-compassion. That's what I see here with all of it. Yeah. I know you're a hundred percent right. And that voice, you know, that, that voice does get, uh, does get stronger with time and people, I, I I always talk about, um, the self-compassion and that kindness piece, that little quiet voice we all have in there. That's like, doesn't want to like, it's so tired of you like your self-critic running the show, right? Like, cause all of us have that inner self-critic, right? And, and I have people identify that part of them, especially in context of body image. Sometimes I have people give it a name. So I've had some funny names. Um, And, you know, for me, it's like a mean girl. It's like a, you know, she's just, she's just a mean girl and she's really critical and really dismissive and, and I've had to learn when, you know, I hear her when she pops up, right? And she's just like, oh, your body doesn't look like it did when it was 25. Like, why can't we go back there? And I'm just like, hey, you know, it depends on the day, right? Sometimes I'm like, you need to shut up, right? Where I was like talking, you know, sometimes sometimes I'm kind of mean back. Um, sometimes I'm much more gentle, like, oh, wow. It's like, again, this is coming from my own inner, my own wounds, right? Wow. It sounds like you're really hurting about what you're seeing in the mirror. I wonder why that is. Mm. Um, other days it's just ignoring it. just like putting on something comfortable, moving on with my day. And, and then other days I can just sort of, I have more space to sit with it. And some days, you know, I have sadness around it. I have my own grief around how my body has changed as I've gotten older. So I think you have to be really realistic about on certain days, you might have more capacity to engage with these thoughts and on other days less. And so you're just going to have to develop different tools to be able to deal with those difficult body image thoughts um, and, and draw from them depending on what's available to you in the moment. And again, some days I might be sitting with it, grieving the changes that your body has undergone, grieving, uh, grieving, um, you know, when people go down a weight neutral path, it means giving up the idea that their body is in their control, that their weight is in control. So there can be a lot of grief around that. If you are in, you know, this is stuff I've learned from my patients at higher weights, like being in a larger body means you are stigmatized by society. There are going to be assumptions made about your body that I can't like the level of grief and sadness that comes along with that is heartbreaking. And so this 
process isn't as complicated as like, oh, just what are my negative thoughts? Let me challenge them. No, it takes a lot, a lot of time and space for people to sit with this information. And again, like if your self-worth is tied with your appearance and your body size, letting that go is, you know, I've been doing this work for three and a half years. And like, there are still days I struggle with it. And I do this day in and day out. So imagine somebody coming at this very new, like you have a, a long road ahead of you. And again, divesting from diet culture means, um, you continue to live in a world that is heavily invested in diet culture. And it it means that you're going to have to build up a thick skin around the messages that are going to continue to operate outside of you. And, um, you know, even, you know, the work that I do, like, all I have people in my life that know exactly what I do and they still say fat phobic stuff. Yes, me too. Right. Yes. And so, and, and by the way, I know that there, you know, all of that stuff comes from people's, their own inner suffering. And like, I know that to be true. Um, but like, you got to build up a thick skin in this culture that continues to be, you know, invested in diet culture. You, there are so many points there that I'd love to bring up. One of the things that I really mm-hmm. honed in on that you said, mm-hmm. which is so interesting is this growth of the mind, this mind growth mindset idea. Mm-hmm. And I think you brought it up in the way of your body is going to go through changes and mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to be stagnant in mm-hmm. the way it's going to be in that time. Like w- what your body is like when you're 14 is not yeah. going to be the same. Your body is going to be in 25. It's not going to be the mm-hmm. same at 35, at 45, at 55, 65, so on. Your body is <laughs> right? going to go through these and that some of them is going to be very dramatic. Some of them are going to be very subtle changes, but the mind is what's really there. And having that openness and giving your mind yeah. space to know that that narrative of being the body shape in your 20s does not have to be there anymore. And uh, giving that space to me is where that growth mindset comes in quite a bit. So you also talked about working with people and and how to Mm -hmm. help. I've got so many other questions. I'd love for you (laughs) to talk about what you and Melissa do, because I, yeah. I really, I have Melissa uh, Melissa on uh, the show as well, but I'd love for you guys to talk a little yeah. bit about what, how you do that with clients. How yeah. do you get them to have that conversation? Um, well, usually clients come to me for that conversation, right? They start <laughs> off being like, I'm coming to you because I have a difficult relationship with food in my body. Mm-hmm. So um, it's funny. I used to... Um, I'm having body image conversations way earlier in my work with people. It's not that I would put it off before, but that it would sort of wait a few sessions, but I'm finding people, people will often say to me, you know, I have a difficult relationship with food, but it stems from my difficult relationship with my body, right? With my, with my body image struggles. So I'm starting there a lot earlier because I'm finding that when you have that foundation around like, well, what is body image and what does it mean for you? And what does body acceptance mean for you? What is that going to look like? What are the pros, the cons? When you start to have those conversations, it does open the door for the conversations around food, around like how you're defining health. Um, but, you know, it it starts the conversation earlier and it's giving people concrete tools to be able to deal with those difficult body image moments and to understand like, where is, well, what is the origin of your body image struggles? Like what messages did you hear growing up? 
at home, right? How were those reinforced? How are, how did those messages continue to be reinforced in our outside world? And then what do you want to do with that information? Right? Like what beliefs do you actually want for yourself and how is it that you want to live your life? And, um, that's sort of where I start the work with people is just those very basic conversations. And, uh, you know, Melissa, you know, from a therapist perspective, I think it's a lot different because those are, uh, very different looking relationships than let's say when you're working with a dietitian one-on-one, it, our stuff is a little bit more food focused and health focused in a way that maybe doesn't fully come up in therapy, but um, yeah, I'm starting with body image really early in the work with people yeah. because it's just a, it, it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did, what work do you and Melissa do to get together? Yeah. Um, so we have, um, so I met Melissa on Instagram. I just like started messaging her and we became sort of Instagram friends. And then one day I was like, Hey, I think we should make a, a a course on intuitive eating and body image healing for Latinos. So we did that. And I, you know, when I say that it sounds so easy, but I don't, I don't even want to know how many hours I spent developing this course. Um, but we did do that and it's amazing. And it's, it's, I think it's pretty wonderful. And I mean, we took the intuitive eating principles and adapt, adapted them to Latinx experiences. And then we just expanded like Melissa and I could talk forever. We just expanded on those messages uh, so much more and brought in a lot of like the course is basically a set of videos that walk you through the principles of intuitive eating. And then it's videos where she and I are just talking about sort of like more nuanced topics that aren't necessarily covered in intuitive eating. Um, so we, you know, it, it's a pretty long course. It's, it's 12 weeks and, um, you know, it's, it's available on our website, Latinx health collective. So that's definitely an option for people. If they want to start, if they want to start their intuitive eating journey, sort of, you know, through a Latinx lens, um, they can start there and it's self-paced so you can really take your time with it and like dive into the material really sit with it um I you know I do one-on-one counseling with people one-on-one coaching and then um something I'm gonna start very soon um it's something that's been brewing in my head for a long time is like small group coaching coaching around um IBS uh, because I do a lot of work with irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I'm going to do small coaching around that and PCOS. Oh, that's, and, that's really good. I see that quite a bit. Yeah. 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 So I thought, um, why not do that? And you know, it'll be like five or six weeks, like nothing super intense, but, um, just, and sort of have people pay what they can for that. And, um, I don't know. That's been on my mind for a while because I I've had that thought of how do you make, you know, coming to me one-on-one is not cheap. I live in New York mm-hmm. city. Prices are high here. Yeah. <laughs> and so my one-on-one prices, I do accept a few insurances, but my one-on-one prices are are not the cheapest for people. Yeah. Um, so group coaching makes that a little bit more accessible mm-hmm. and, you know, people like community. So yeah, that's sort of a built-in community. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of what's been, What's been going on? That's good. It's good. Uh, tell yeah. people where they can find you. Yeah. Um, so my website is uh, www.eatthority.com, E-A-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. I'm sort of on Instagram. Me too. 
authority like i just i have this love hate relationship with social media yeah, and me too <laughs> i'm sometimes active most of the time not i used to be a lot more active and i'm not gonna lie since not being active my <laughs> mental health is way better uh-huh. um but i think i might sort of dip back in just a, once or twice a week with just some educational posts um and then there's that and then the latinx health collective.com where um I am with Melissa. Again, that's also not always super active because it's just, you know, my practice is literally like I have a wait list for patients. So yeah. that takes up a lot of my time. So there's not always a time outside time for other projects and such. But, uh, you know, we're trying to come up with some health at every size, intuitive eating focused handouts that people can share in their communities. And, and you know, we're slowly working on that and we'll be adding that to the website so people can print those out for there. I don't know if you work in a community health clinic and you want to share some information, you got a free handout that you can just print out and send to patients. All right. One last question. If you were mm-hmm. stranded on a desert island and it was the last meal you could have, what would it be? Oof. Oh my God. Oh my God. What would it be? Oof. That is really hard. like one meal. <laughs> yeah, it's the last one. It could be made for you however you want it. My ideal meal. Sure. Uh, I'm going to betray my Latinx roots here. Uh, I, it, it's got to be pasta. Like pasta. I, I, there's, I'm trying to think of, I love cacio pepe. Okay. If I could do my God, like a cacio e pepe or maybe a burrito. I don't, that's hard because maybe a burrito. Because for me, I love uh, food with a lot of like te- texture and like, I like the like creaminess to food. So for me, a burrito is all of that, right? It's like creamy and like savory. It's definitely a savory dish. Maybe between a burrito, ugh, cacio pepe with a glass of Nebbiolo. Ooh. Um, well, I said last meal. It doesn't last matter meal. what's on it. it oh, matter- oh, okay. Oh, it could be multiple things. It's up oh, to I you, thought it girl. was like one thing. Oh, yeah, cacio pepe, a glass of Nebbiolo. Um, oh, got a burrito with like rice, beans, sour cream, cheese. Um, I not even meat, just like that, and some like aguacate, and then um, oof, that probably. Oh, and then like a, a chocolate mousse. Like I really, again, I like, uh, I'm not a huge dessert person, but like for me, if it's like a mousse, like a creamy dessert, that that is my jam. So like a chocolate mousse with like a uh, fresh whipped cream on top. I think that's what I would do. And the glass of, maybe not a glass, maybe two or three. <laughs> I love it. You kept going. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> oh, if it was like unlimited foods, I, I, that, I have a, you know, I have a, a, a scroll of, <laughs> of like a bite of everything. And Ooh, my newest favorite thing I should throw out there. If anybody has access to like a really, like a good cheese shop, uh, there's this cheese that I recently discovered. Dauphinois. Dauphinois. I, I don't even know how to spell that. It's called You're going to have to give me. Fin, You're going to have to send me the, the name on email. And I'll put it on the show notes. Yeah, it is. It tastes like butter. That's it's a French cheese. It tastes like butter and it's very spreadable and creamy. Oh. And so that on a baguette. Mm. <laughs> oh, it People, is. if you could see her face. <laughs> yeah. And also champagne. I would throw that in. I would throw in a nice. Okay. Stop. You're making, me, <laughs> you're making my mouth water. I'm like, yeah. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry. But yeah, okay, sorry. I get carried No, no, no. I didn't mean literally to stop. I was just, I was like, I'm gonna now I'm gonna go pig out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm excited for that. So that's it, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, uh, Carolina, thank you so much for this. This was fantastic. I can talk to you forever on all of this stuff. Boy, we've got so many more things to talk about. So we're going to have just going to have to have you on again. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll, I'll come back whenever you want. Okay. All right. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, this was fantastic. Mil gracias, Carolina. Thank you so much for being such an incredible guest in these last two parts. And, you know, I'm amazed because she volunteered a considerable amount of time to give us all of this information. So, mil, mil gracias. Thank you so much, Carolina. I'm so excited because next week we get to bring you part three with Melissa Carmona. I will warn you that that episode is quite long, so stay tuned. But it's got a bunch of information because... We also talk about the cultural values in Latinx communities. So stay tuned to what that means, like collectivism, familismo, personalismo, respeto, machismo, marianismo, all of these great topics. We also talk about the work that her and Carolina do with the Latinx Health Collective I am really excited because they bring us some great information about what they're doing uh, to help the Latinx community. So stay tuned to that. That's coming again next week. And just a big reminder again, we're coming up to our 100th episode, just three episodes away. So I'm really excited because in that one, I'm going to bring some highlights from episodes throughout the year. I'm also going to talk about the rebranding that we have coming on, which is so cool. And then, of course, some highlights about shows and episodes that we have coming up. So looking at past, present and future. Here we go. I love it. All right, folks, just remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body and nourish your soul. Until next time. Ciao.